Parkinson's disease typically manifests when a person is age 50 or 60, but it can begin as early as age 30. What are the earliest symptoms of Parkinson's? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lund, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host. And with me today is Dr. Robert Hauser. Dr. Hauser is a professor of neurology, pharmacology, and experimental therapeutics at the University of South Florida College of Medicine in Tampa. He also serves at the university as director of the Clinical Interdisciplinary Program in Neuroscience and as director of the Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorder Center, which is recognized by the National Parkinson Foundation as a center of excellence. Welcome to ReachMD. Well, thank you, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's, it's an honor to have someone of your stature on the show. And uh, just so we're all on the same, uh, same playing field here, why don't you tell us kind of the intro version of what is Parkinson's disease? Well, Parkinson's disease is a progressive neurologic disorder characterized by a loss of dopamine neurons in the brain. We now know, however, that uh, the pathology of Parkinson's disease actually starts in the lower brainstem and olfactory bulb, and over time ascends to affect those dopamine neurons and ultimately goes up to the cortex and affects thinking. And what are the initial motor features that you see in patients? When individuals have lost about 60% of the dopamine neurons, they get the classic motor features, which include bradykinesia, or slowness of movement, rigidity, or stiffness, and tremor. The tremor of Parkinson's disease is usually a rest tremor, so when the limb is resting either in the lap or by one side when walking, that's the rest tremor of Parkinson's disease. In addition, Parkinson's disease is asymmetric. Usually one side is affected first and is worse through the disease, and ultimately once patients are placed on dopamine replacement type medications, we expect to see an improvement in signs and symptoms. So you don't see motor symptoms until people lose 60% of their dopamine neurons? That's right. There's a fair amount of buffering built into the system, and this is one of our areas of research. How can we identify people who are on their way to getting Parkinson's disease? Can we identify them early enough, and can we develop therapies that might stop the process even before slowness, stiffness, and tremor come out? Mm -hmm. So how are we doing with that? Well, we're doing pretty well. As I mentioned, uh, the pathology starts in the lower brainstem and olfactory bulb. And we now recognize that there are clinical correlates to this. So one of the problems that people may manifest early on are sleep disturbances, and in particular, REM behavior disorder. Normally when we're in REM sleep, we're dreaming, but we don't move about because there's sort of a shut-off switch that keeps us from moving. In REM behavior disorder, people tend to act out their dreams. And we now know about 40 to 50% of individuals who have REM behavior disorder go on to get the motor features of Parkinson's disease. So this looks like it may, in fact, be an early mm -hmm. manifestation of Parkinson's disease. That's a great clinical pearl if you see REM behavior disorder really start looking for Parkinson's. Exactly. Expect that that may progress to Parkinson's disease. The other thing we realize now is that by the time people have those motor features, they usually have a decreased sense of smell, again, correlating with the early pathology of Parkinson's disease. So in re the research setting, we're going to be looking at individuals who have Parkinson's disease patients as relatives and who have decreased sense of smell. Uh, in this study, we're not going to look at sleep disorders, but that might be another thing to look at to try and see can we find people who we can predict are going to get the motor features later on. Mm. How do you measure people's sense of smell? Well, there's actually a smell kit that uh, has been devised by the University of Pennsylvania, and it's available commercially. Uh, it's sort of a scratch-and-sniff kit, and 
and uh, one gets scored based on how many correct uh, odors one can identify. Now, I assume there are other non-motor early symptoms of Parkinson's as well? Well, there are some midlife risk factors, and these include constipation, sleepiness, and adiposity. And we're not sure if these are just risk factors or whether they're actually the first manifestations of the disease. So, for example, if we think about constipation, it's known that in the peripheral nerves to the gut, one actually can see Parkinson's disease pathology. One sees aggregations of proteins called Lewy bodies. And that might actually happen in midlife in the gut before it happens in the brain. Now, there are some competing theories, which is, well, somebody who has constipation may have a food-ingested toxin hang out in the body and get absorbed more. But I happen to think that constipation probably is one of the first signs of Parkinson's disease, although, of course, it's very nonspecific. You Mm -hmm. can't make the diagnosis just based on that. So if we're seeing a constipated, sleepy, overweight person who has a decreased sense of smell, Mm -hmm. we need to send them to you. Well, yeah, I think the next step in the evolution is that people who have these kinds of risk factors will probably get neuroimaging studies such as a fluorodopa PET scan or beta CIT spec. These imaging modalities provide indices of numbers of remaining dopamine neurons. So I think uh, to identify people with these problems followed by neuroimaging to see if the dopamine system appears to be diverging from normal is probably what we're going to be doing in the Mm -hmm. future. Are any genetic tests useful at this point? Well, we know about 10 genes that are associated with Parkinson's disease. Thus far, they seem to account for about 2 to 5% of all Parkinson's disease patients. So there are some genes. Uh, they're more prevalent uh, proportionally in younger onset patients. Uh, so in the right set setting, we do have the opportunity to check for genes. What age do Parkinson's patients typically present? Well, the average age of onset is 60, but at a tertiary referral center like ours, we see a lot of patients in their 50s, a good number in their 40s, some in their 30s, and even a few in their 20s. Now, this used to be a big surprise, but with uh, Michael J. Fox being uh, relatively high profile, uh, most everyone recognizes now that uh, Parkinson's disease can start at an early age. He got it uh, beginning at about age 30. But you don't see it in children? Uh, It's very uncommon to see it in children, yes. What are the numbers? What's the epidemiology? How many people get Parkinson's? Well, there are between a million and 1.5 million people estimated to have Parkinson's disease in North America. So it's a relatively common disorder. Mm -hmm. And do we know what causes it? We don't know exactly what causes it. There are some environmental risk factors that are known, and these include rural living, exposure to pesticides, drinking well water, and head trauma. We've already mentioned uh, that uh, we know a few genes that seem to account for about 5% of patients. So we still have a large proportion of patients that we don't exactly know the cause. It's speculated that it must be an interaction between environmental exposure and genetics, but the exact uh, specifics remain to be elucidated. What are the common misdiagnoses that you see of Parkinson's disease? Number one, other types of tremor. So patients Uh, with Parkinson's disease may be misdiagnosed as having essential tremor or vice versa. Essential tremor, those patients generally have tremor with the arms outstretched or during use and usually don't have tremor with the arms at rest. When examining these in patients, it's important to try to really get the patient to relax to look for that rest tremor. In addition, there's some other kinds of Parkinsonisms that are known as the atypical Parkinsonisms. These generally have more widespread pathology in the brain They tend to be symmetric from side to side. Usually there's no tremor. 
patients run into early speech and balance difficulties and tend to not respond to dopamine medications. Obviously, a, a thorough neuro exam is probably, what, the gold standard in terms of diagnostic testing? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, right now, to look for those differences clinically and uh, in the future, Again, the uh, neuroimaging may be helpful if, if it's not clear whether the patient has essential tremor or a Parkinson's disease tremor to look to see what's the status of the dopamine system. So at what point should we begin to treat Parkinson's? Well, in the treatment, I think the prime consideration is that levodopa is still the gold standard. Levodopa gets up to the brain, is converted into dopamine, and slowly released over time. It's the strongest medication with the fewest side effects in the short term, but the problem is that over the long term, many patients develop a sensitivity to it where they get twisting, turning movements called dyskinesia. Again, Michael J. Fox is an example of that. We now know that the earlier one starts levodopa, the earlier that kind of sensitivity problem begins and is expressed. So what we generally do is start with other medications, and when those are insufficient, then add levodopa. Oh, okay. So levodopa is kind of the big gun that you, you save for when you really need it. Yeah, I think that's fair. So what do you start off with? Well, there are a number of different medications. MAOB inhibitors are available. Risagiline is a new MAOB inhibitor that is approved for use in early disease. The other mainstay in early disease are the dopamine agonists. These go directly to the brain to activate dopamine receptors. And those that are currently available include primipexol, ropinerol, and now rotigotine is available in a patch form. And what kind of side effects do you have with the dopamine agonists? Well, the side effects include nausea, lightheadedness with a decrease in blood pressure. And recently, we've recognized that dopamine agonists can cause sleepiness, including unintended sleep episodes. So it's very important to ask patients about that Uh, When I start patients on a dopamine agonist, I warn them that if they're driving and they're sleepy, they need to pull over and stop driving. And if they're experiencing episodes of falling asleep at inappropriate times at home, like when they're eating or talking on the phone, they should not be driving. The other side effect that's recently been uh, uncovered are the impulse control disorders. And these include things like pathologic gambling, pathologic uh, shopping, or hypersexual behavior. Is there any gender difference in Parkinson's? Well, it turns out that uh, men do uh, get the disease more frequently than women in about a three-to-two ratio. And again, probably no no clear reason why? No, we don't know why. So estrogen's maybe a little protective, <laughs> we <laughs> hope. Some of us it, hope. <laughs> it's possible. Based on those observations, there have been uh, some studies begun looking to see if estrogen might provide uh, some benefit in Parkinson's. So who usually makes the diagnosis of Parkinson's? Is it a primary care doc? Is it a neurologist? How does it typically happen? I think it's usually the neurologist. The primary care physician, I think, has an important role in looking for the presence of tremor, slowness, or stiffness. And typically, when a primary care physician sees those problems, he'll refer to a neurologist who usually makes the diagnosis. But I must say it depends on the primary care physician. If they're knowledgeable and experienced, they might be able to make the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. When would it be necessary to not only see a neurologist, but a neurologist who subspecializes in Parkinson's such as yourself? Yeah, I think uh, for patients who want uh, the best opinion, that's reasonable. I think when there's questions as to the diagnosis or the best management, it does make sense to refer to a Parkinson's disease physician. How, how many of those are there? 
Well, there's about uh, 150 in the United States. <laughs> so it might be tough to get in. Yeah, I think every major city, though, usually has a uh, movement disorder physician. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I was extremely fortunate. We had Harold Kluans, um in Chicago, uh, where I trained, who uh, taught us a bunch about Parkinson's back in the old days. Right, one of the fathers of movement disorders in the United States. Yeah. Now, where can physicians learn more about Parkinson's disease? Well, one excellent place is the website, which is the Movement Disorders Virtual University. University, and that is mdvu.org. This is a website to educate physicians and a healthcare community provided by the organization called WeMove. And uh, there's also a parallel website called wemove.org that's geared to informing patients. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Leslie. We've been discussing the early identification and treatment of Parkinson's disease with Dr. Robert Hauser. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.